Good afternoon, everyone. We are in day 11. Of it's the daily serial that has the country hooked. Playing the leads, the Prime Minister. I've been sharing the platform with um, Director General of Health, Dr. Ashley Bloomfield. I'm going to ask. And the country's health boss. Thank you, Prime Minister. Kia ora koutou katoa. And there's a silent third person sharing the stage, the sign language interpreter. And then there's the bad guys. Well, that's what some think. The journalists whose news gathering methods are now on show for all to see. Apologise for this. It seems like there's been a lot of confusion around something because, I mean, it's a pretty critical mistake. And are they going to lose their jobs? Why didn't you front foot it then today in your statement? I think it's that fine line, isn't it, between what is scrutiny and what then flips into gotcha or what some would call harassment. I'm Sharon Brett Kelly today on the details stuff, political journalist Thomas Coughlin on what goes on at the 1pm presser. It's in the basement of the Beehive. It's this very dark, poorly lit room in the in the bottom of the Beehive. I, I actually find it quite a tiring place to be. I usually have a coffee immediately afterwards because it's the atmosphere is so... Draining. It has the sort of soporific quality to it. What does it actually look like? Because, you know, we see the main players up on the stage, but we, we don't really get a view of where you are. It is just a small theatre with a slightly raised uh, tiered seating. Maybe I'd say there'll be less than, than 10, 10 rows of seats. Um, under level two, we all have to be socially distanced. Everyone who works in the press gallery has an office which is in the parliament building. It takes about 30 seconds to walk from our offices to the theatreette. So before every press conference, all of the outlets will be communicating with their newsrooms around the country. Those newsrooms, you know, say, say reporters in Southland will be sending questions about the, the bluff cluster, for example, to us. Mm. We'll put those questions into a Google Doc and then we'll wander into the, um, to the, the theatre with that Google Doc on our laptops ready to, to put those questions to the Prime Minister. What is the atmosphere like as you're sort of getting in there and setting yourselves up? I mean, is it tense? It probably changed a bit over the course of, of the lockdown because the, the theatre is where a lot of stuff happens. During the lockdown, because all of us were trapped at home, it was also the place where, where actually we were some of the only people in the country who got to see colleagues. So for those 10 minutes before the press conference, it was actually a nice place to just sort of ask people how they were coping with what was a really difficult situation. And then someone will usually say that the, the mics are hot, um, which means that we're live streaming to the country. And then, you know, that's a sort of cue to stop, to stop talking. Um, and then... It's actually quite funny. They've got this um, hand sanitizer thing outside the, the conference and, you know, leading from the front, Ashley Bloomfield and, and Jacinda Ardern always hand sanitize before coming into the auditorium. Mm-hmm. So the cue to know that they're going to, you know, be coming into the auditorium from behind you is this kind of electronic sound, which is the, <laughs> the hand sanitizer that they're both using um, before you hear and, and you hear the sort of flurry of, of camera clicks and... And then they, they take the podium and um, you're on. Could everyone sit up and ready to go? The routine kind of happened all at once. Like, I think I was at the last press conference before they moved them to the theatre end. Ashley Bloomfield used to do them at the Ministry of Health um, just up the road, and so we'd walk up there to do them. And then uh, during the lockdown, I guess it was, it was easier for the, the camera crews and probably safer to have everyone conduct the press conference in this purpose-built theatreette. The tradition of the 1pm kind of evolved quite naturally from that, from that decision. But, you know, there were a few important things that flowed on from that. I think one thing that's been less well-examined is the fact that by moving them to the theatreette, the government and the ministry actually restricted the attendance of, 
of those press conferences and made it a press gallery thing. Do you think that was deliberate to move it there so that you did narrow they did narrow down the number of journalists who could ask the questions? I don't think it was deliberate. I, I just think it was possibly one of those things that it was a, a decision that was made really quickly that had quite serious consequences. I have not reported on a on a health crisis before. I'm not sure actually if, if any of us had, had reported on a public health crisis before. And so, as we all know, this has become the most watched, most listened to, most viewed thing in New Zealand media, really, hasn't it? The one o'clock presser. What was it like for you covering it day after day? I mean, you say it's exciting, but was it? it yeah, I mean, the, the first few weeks were exciting. It was a former uh, media executive in New Zealand who said that there is this, this sort of interesting tension in journalism where awful things happen, but you can't deny that they're fascinating and interesting to cover. I covered the first weekend where the Prime Minister announced the level system and put New Zealand into level two. That addressed the nation and then that first press conference that she did where she came down the lift into the theatre to explain that level system. Cabinet met this morning to discuss our next actions in the fight against COVID-19. The tension in the room, it was, it was actually, I, I'm lost for words, it was indescribable, that sense of, of moving into a, a period that New Zealand has never actually experienced before. Like the rest of the world, we are facing the potential for devastating impacts from this virus. And she was there saying, right, I'm going to do this now. I'm gonna, I, I am going to lock down the country. And all of a sudden, everything that you thought was possible, everything that you thought politicians would do and would never do, was thrown out the window. Um, I would, you know, you'd never think that a politician could just you know, flick the off switch on mm. the country, and she did it. These decisions will place the most significant restrictions on New Zealanders' movements in modern history. It was frankly exciting. It was only sort of later that I sort of realised that people at home were having problems with the way that the, the press conference was, was done. What was going on was obviously extraordinary and unprecedented. But the way that the questions were being asked and the way that the, the gallery was conducting itself is really quite normal. In those 1pm press conferences, there really is no material difference from an ordinary post-Cabinet press conference with the government or a stand-up with the opposition. It, it, it doesn't feel any different. The criticism seemed to come from nowhere because this is really the way it's always been and actually no one has had an issue with it in the past because I don't think anyone's been watching. Well that's the thing isn't it? The whole country is witnessing the journalists asking the question and, and that hasn't happened in the past because this is live TV, it's sort of reality yeah. TV in a way isn't it? So they give an update on the number of cases and then the questions start. So what happens? What is going on? I mean is it a sort of a, you know, get out your elbows and be the, be the first <laughs> to start shouting your question how does it work yeah look it, i arrived in the gallery in 2018 i sort of learned on the job and it does i suppose the first time you see it you think my god no <laughs> this is a circus but it is there are really important ways of how it works the most important thing i think the sort of shouty atmosphere that, that there is there that is a a, a symptom of the fact that the press gallery controls the press conference, not the person who is giving the press conference. And that is really important because it means that the the politician can't evade the question. There are, there are questions that politicians don't like being even asked, let alone being forced to answer. 
that's probably where the shoutiness gets comes from because that's everyone everyone piling in to get their questions asked, and we we face a lot of pressure from our you know own organisations to get questions asked from across the country. So for every question that gets put to the prime minister, there'll be four or five that don't get asked in any press conference. The other tradition is that the broadcasters go first because the you know video footage of people asking questions is is probably more important to their you know bottom line. There's a bit of a um, a hierarchy in that regard as well. And is everybody happy? about that? Does that bother you? No, it doesn't. I mean, it doesn't bother me. I will, I will still try to ask a question first, you know, because <laughs> I'm, I'm naturally competitive and <laughs> that's just me. And you'll see that everyone tries to ask um, ask it first, but it's the political editors usually of the two big TV broadcasters that, that go first. And I quite like that. That's, Do you? That sort of contest. Yeah, it's fun. But it's not fun for a lot of viewers. Robin Patterson is a documentary maker and she's written about the public backlash to the aggressive behaviour. There's two things that concern me. One is catastrophizing, so you're seeing the sort of very exaggerated headlines, and the other is gotcha journalism. It's really looking for a scalp or looking for someone to say that they failed, that they'll resign, and uh, trapping them in a situation where they have to say that repeatedly. I think that's the thing where you're seeing that question put um, not only to politicians um, but also to our emergency managers repeatedly. So did you fail? Did you fail? Will you resign? Is this a total failure? Do you know who is either failing to pass on the message or is failing to actually do what has been instructed and are they going to lose their jobs? There have been repeated failures of the testing system under your leadership. Shouldn't you take some responsibility for what's happening and offer your resignation? Well... Uh, I think the minister's. It's actually a failure when the government yourself, you have to stand up here, as does the director general, and admit that staff are not doing the job that they have been instructed by you two to do. Minister, do you owe the public an apology for all this? I mean, the buck stops with you, doesn't it? It doesn't actually lead to any useful information. In fact, it's blocking the useful information that we might gain from those press conferences that uh, there are valid questions that need to be asked of the process. There are valid questions that need to be asked of politicians. But in fact, that line of questioning does not lead to that information coming through and it blocks those valid questions from being asked. It's really looking at what is the end game from Mm. that line of questioning. Is it um, a scalp? In which case, we need to be very sure that... It's in the public good to get that scalp um, because if we destabilise a public health response, that has severe consequences. I think the repetitive questioning is its something that I feel people are choosing not to understand it. I find this quite frustrating, I think, because politicians, for a start, politicians don't lie, usually. And if they do, they, they probably would have to resign. But politicians won't voluntarily surrender the whole truth. They don't um, proactively put information out there like that. Mm. So as a journalist, you have to repetitively question. And you, when, when a question's repeated, it's refined each time slightly. You've got to refine that question down in, in such a way that it becomes sort of a closed yes or no question, not what do you want to do about this issue. And if you ask an, an open or vague question like that, the Prime Minister will just say, look, I care about this issue and I'm working on it, which is an absolutely useless answer. You know, We want to know whether what the politician is working on is material or whether it's effective or whether it's worth the trust that we put in those politicians. So you've got to refine that question down to have you been briefed on this? What is the timeline for action on this? What level of funding will you, will you allocate to this? Stuff that's really, really explicit and discreet. 
this is a really unfortunate metaphor, but it's like a, a sheepdog herding a flock of sheep through a gate. The politician will naturally try and be woolly and vague and, and try and take the answer to a place where they give an answer that feels like it's answered the question, but actually surrenders almost no information. And I think if you read the transcripts of the, you know, and you take the um, tone out, if you read the transcripts, just the written transcripts, you'll see that a lot of the questions just aren't answered. The repeat questioning is, is kind of trying to narrow down what you're looking for and force the politician into giving you an actual answer to it. I think it's sort of the trust that, that, that people who are in this building have. You know your subjects very well. I, I, mean, I don't know Jacinda Ardern as a person at all, mm. um, but I probably listen to maybe 90% of the stuff that she's ever said in public. So we're, we're very good at knowing how she communicates to people. And I think what the public perhaps don't get is, is the ticks, the tells, She's like a poker player, you know, and we can read her quite well because that's sort of our job. And the the repetitive, occasionally um, aggressive questioning is a way of of cutting through that. Yeah, the and spin. Getting to you a, call it the spin. Cutting through the cutting through the spin. And on on the spin, you know, Jacinda Ardern goes in there with her gloves on. She knows what she's doing. She's the best in the business. That's why she's Prime Minister. You know, some of the criticism that you get is, you know, why are you being so mean to someone who's so nice? And, <laughs> and that's not what it's like at all, you know. She goes in there with um, with what she wants to say. We want her to say more because we want to get to what's going on. And that's the contest. Right. You know, there are more there are more comms people in the beehive, just the beehive, than there are journalists in the press gallery on some days. You know, that the Prime Minister has three people who look after her communications. Most ministers have at least one, often two. Um, then they've got all of the spin team and the actual civil service who help out with the policy stuff, the non-political stuff. So this isn't an unfair contest where we're, we're the press gallery of 30 ganging up on the Prime Minister of one. <laughs> one of the things I've found interesting has been the way that New Zealand has piled in behind not the not the health response in general, but specifically the leaders of that response, and then there's Jacinda Ardern and Ashley Bloomfield. You know, they are the ones who are the heroes, and that is because they have done a good job. You know, and I think I think that has been reported on quite fairly is that the decisions that they've made have usually been the right ones. But the flip side of that is when people in the system have raised concerns about how it's functioned. I think there was some great reporting done by Michael Mora up in Auckland and Tove O'Brien was doing the, the news questions in, in Wellington for it about um, nurses at the Waitemata DHB not having correct PPE. Three nurses at North Shore Hospital have separately emailed News Hub to raise their concerns about management's approach. And those sorts of questions were aggressive because that is outrageous. These nurses were putting their lives on the line and they weren't adequately protected. And those questions were shouted down um, by the commentariat as well. Mm. I just found it staggering that we had, you know, nurses, the, the, the bravest people in this whole, you know, f- fight against COVID, the bravest people, going, we, we put them on the front lines of this, this crisis and they weren't adequately protected. And when they blew the whistle on that, we as a country shouted them down. Meanwhile, in the UK and, and America, people were going out on their doorsteps banging um, pots and pans and clapping their hands to support their essential workers. And New Zealand, we were essentially calling them liars. There's been a very kind of monolithic cultural response to COVID-19, which has been to back the leadership 
And you should, you know, this is a serious situation. We are called on to do our bit. But, you know, we live in a free-thinking democracy, and if people on the front lines are saying it's not good enough, then we do need to hold our politicians to account for that. And I would talk about the PPE story too as a good example of when an information line of repeated questioning has been used effectively. That's not what I'm complaining about and it's not what the public are complaining about. Where it switches, and I think it's that fine line, isn't it, between what is scrutiny and what then flips into gotcha or what some would call harassment or what some hear as harassment. Is there information that's going to come from this question or is this just hectoring a person in order to unsettle them and also unsettle, potentially unsettle the public with a headline. We are seeing the lines of questioning, we're seeing how that's done, we're seeing how people respond, and we're then seeing the headlines that come from it. Um, sometimes they don't match what we've heard um, in there, not just because journalists are getting information from outside sources, which is, you know, if that happens, it's declared, but sometimes because something's been deliberately, and you can tell, it's been deliberately twisted to sound slightly different or a selective bit has come out in order to make it sound more dramatic than perhaps was actually said. The public in the era of social media have access um, to that, and I think that that's um, uncomfortable for um, some journalists were seeing the working process. The public is then also able to turn a critical lens on journalists, which is perhaps a position they haven't been in before. It's fair to say they were used to controlling the narrative and used to being the ones uh, issuing the criticism. So that being turned around, I can appreciate as an uncomfortable um, position. You actually talk about disaster journalism. Mm -hmm. You talk about a Griffith University study of best practice approaches for journalists reporting disasters. So in this situation, should journalists be asking questions and handling those press conferences in a completely different way? I mean, what, do, do they have to have something else in mind when they're asking the questions? I don't think they have to be handled in an entirely different way, but I think what they need to bring to that is that sense of responsibility, is that sense that um, what's important here is that the public need accuracy, they need information, they need balance, uh, and they need perspective. So it's both being mindful of what the public needs are, and I really feel that at times that hasn't been taken into account. What do the public need? What we are facing at the moment is um, a particularly... Uh, tricky disaster because it's a long-term disaster. It is ongoing. And a public health response requires widespread and continued public buy-in. Um, we already are seeing the increase of anti-lockdown protests, of conspiracy theories, of people turning to uh, inaccurate sources of information. Two things happen within uh, those press conferences, I feel, when you have those sort of more uh, hectoring lines of questioning and the gotcha journalism, is that public can either look at that and lose faith in politicians or in their emergency managers. As I said, that's not just politicians. The other thing that happens is that they lose faith uh, in journalists and in the sources of information that they are looking to. That creates a ripe ground for people going to wrong sources. It also creates a ripe ground for conspiracy theories because they thrive on unease. They thrive on unsettled population. And if we can't trust our valid sources of, of information, 
it, it just creates more fertile ground for that to grow. And I think the time that I started to become the most alarmed was when um, Dr Bloomfield was facing repeated, did you fail? Are you going to resign? Is this a failure? So you have totally failed the nation. You know, w- Will you be offering your resignation? The reason that was alarming to me, albeit that there were questions that needed to be asked, was one, we weren't getting the information that we needed, which was, what is going on here? What is happening at the border? Can you tell us exactly who is being tested, who isn't being tested? That's the information that you know we were looking for from those. So first of all, it was blocking that information. Secondly, it risked Dr Bloomfield actually having to resign. And what would happen in that circumstance when we are in the state that we are in currently? We are facing a second wave of a pandemic. We have had, to date what has been an internationally praised uh, response to that, uh, albeit that there are mistakes and there are questions to be answered. What is the end game of that? What would actually happen if that was followed through and our Director General of Public Health resigned at that time? Where does that leave us uh, as a nation at this time? Um, And is that helpful Uh, or is that problematic to our response to this pandemic? When you look at the testing that was going on at the border, that, that was a complete failure and it happened twice. Part of the wider context of this is the, the fact that the Ministry of Health is often regarded within Wellington, even within the Beehive, as a bit of a, it's a, bit of a dog of a, of a ministry. The health system is a bit of a dog. The DHBs are massive and too powerful. The Ministry of Health is this kind of weak ministry that sits on top of them. And so there is a natural suspicion about the Ministry of Health's ability to do stuff. And and that has been borne out. Ashley Bloomfield has been incredible. He is an incredible leader. The wider New Zealand system has been able to coordinate this crisis very well. But the fact that we didn't have a massive outbreak here has actually meant that the health system itself has not been tested to the extent that it has overseas. So the idea that the health response has been incredible in New Zealand is, you know, it's not necessarily true because it the health response will never really got activated to the mm. extent that it has done in, in countries in Europe, for example. Does it worry you that the public backlash is pretty full on? Yeah, I mean, it, it does. You, you don't go into journalism to be popular. I mean, in my own experience, like the last few weeks, I did I did that Green School story, which annoyed a lot of people on that side of things. Then I did, you know, um, Judith Collins's husband was doing those strange memes, and that annoyed a lot of people in National. And then I did a story about Ginny Anderson, which annoyed people in Labour. So, eventually, in a week's work, you'll probably annoy ninety percent of the electorate. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm not sure the precise number of people who are here every day, but I, you know they're the only people that get what it's like to routinely antagonise half the country. <laughs> <laughs> um, what has happened is a really ugly, misogynist tone to a lot of the criticism. I think that's sort of disgraceful and that is uh, worrying and embarrassing in 2020, frankly. I don't think long-term public faith in the media will be eroded when you look at the stories that we've done, for example, that one about the Waitemata nurses, there have already been reports that have borne out the reporting in those stories. They yeah. were, the stories were correct, and um, the politicians were held to account for that. There will be a royal inquiry someday, I'm sure, into coronavirus, and I'm sure you know most, uh, if not all, of the concerns that were raised in those press conferences um, will be borne out as being um, fair uh, and accurate. And I think in the long term, hopefully... That will um, that will calm people down. <laughs>
<laughs> I think that's the other thing is some of the criticism was so angry and most of us were dealing with job cuts, redundancies, pay cuts. It was quite strange. You'd have people emailing you saying, you know, you've you've kind of got the tone wrong, and you're like, okay, you know. But you know, my colleagues have been told that they'd like that their their companies were shedding two hundred, one hundred and fifty jobs, and uh, and people would come in <laughs> saying, have you thought about your tone? That's it for today. I'm Sharon Brett Kelly. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, leave us a rating so other people can find us too. Today's episode was engineered by Adrian Holley and produced by Alexia Russell. And thanks to Thomas Coglin and Robin Patterson. Mā te wā.